Welcome to Conversations for Ali, a podcast sharing the real life, everyday stories of resilient Australian women from the bush. I'm Ebony Wan. We'll hear how these women have overcome some huge adversities as well as what tools they use on a daily basis to regain a sense of peace, normality and happiness in their lives again. I've created this podcast in loving memory of my friend, Dr. Alexandra Jane Tapp. This is Conversations for Ali. Today you're going to hear from my sister-in-law, Shanna Wan. Please be aware that this episode does deal with sensitive topics and adult themes. If you find this triggers anything for you, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Shan and I have known each other for 11 years. My husband Pete and Shan's husband Tim are brothers and very close, so we see each other regularly and really love their company. Tim and Shan are a fabulous auntie and uncle to our children and we're very glad that Shan has been able to recover from her addiction to alcohol to allow our relationships to flourish. For about 20 years, alcohol ruled Shan's life and ultimately Millie took it. Six years ago she hit rock bottom and she describes it as a miracle that she was able to truly acknowledge there was a problem and begin to heal. Now Shan is the founder and CEO of the national charity Sober in the Country, who are an independent not-for-profit charity addressing alcohol harm in the bush through their OK to Say No campaign and via advocacy, social impact and providing a rural members-only peer-to-peer support group. Pete and I and our extended family are very proud of all she has achieved so far and look forward to seeing what more is to come. I was a bit nervous to record this podcast with Shen, or Shania as I affectionately call her, because she's so gifted at speaking and being able to get her message across. But I soon relaxed and realised that it was just us having a cuppa in the home Tim and Shan recently moved into, which is actually the old family church belonging to the Wands, dedicated to our husband's great-grandmother and actually where Pete and I were married eight years ago. It was a special bush setting for a special conversation. This is Shan's story. So Shan, tell us about your early years in childhood. I think I had a pretty typical childhood in the sense that I grew up on a remote property and was shipped off to boarding school at a young age just for lack of other options. So I often describe my childhood as that of a free-range feral bush kid and I loved it. It was very special. Mm. So what did your day-to-day life look like as a child on that property? Self-sufficient, independent, free-range. You remember... You know, I think often about kids these days and how well protected they are. Um, And I I feel actually forever grateful that I was the kid who was able to get bareback on an old paddock horse and pretty much disappear for eight hours. Mm. And that's what my childhood was like. I would basically come back to the homestead on dark more often than not with a rescue animal or a bird or something I'd found or something I'd picked up (laughs) Um, it was absolutely extraordinary. Such a beautiful childhood. So scrapes and bumps and bruises and BMX accidents and 
oh, chooks and pigs and dogs and horses and, I, you know, the other thing I'm so, so grateful for is that we grew up without any technology. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so grateful for my childhood, very, very grateful that I was able to be a bush kid yeah. in every sense of the word. Yeah. Um, and so at what age did you go to boarding school? Well, sadly, that was at about 11. I went to Toowoomba, which is the generic location of choice for most kids, you know, in the district that I was. So, yeah, I was grade 7. Mm. Yeah. Were you looking forward to going? I've got a shocking memory <laughs> for certain things and a great memory for others. And I don't recall um, exactly the lead up to boarding school, but I will never, ever, 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 ever forget the emotions of when I got there. And it was a really, really shocking um, transition. Mm. Shocking. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't honestly recall really fond or positive memories. Mm. Um, I felt like I'd landed in an alien planet and I had. I had. Because growing up um, prior to that. Sorry. Oh, my God. (laughs) Maui. Sorry, guys. That's a small view. Oh, my God. Hang on. Sorry. (laughs) That's my puppy. Leave her alone. Come on. Come on. So in your primary years, did you have many friendships or or social interactions with other kids your age or was it really just um, your brother and parents and whoever was on the farm? Yeah, and that's that's the pivotal thing, isn't it? So, mm. no, I went to boarding school with the social skills of a peanut. Mm. I had none. Mm. Um, there was no daycare and mm. socialising and teaching children how to be resilient and amazing. Yeah. I was pretty much plucked out of the wilderness like a feral kid with bad hair out of Mad Max and <laughs> just, yeah, just plonked into this environment, suddenly surrounded by kids who did have social skills and social standing and uh, that whole generational we are from here or we are from there that was going on, whereas we were just random kids who yeah. were the children of immigrants and... Yeah, my gosh, it was incredibly awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, you know how kids are so cruel, um, or not cruel by nature, but very tactless and direct. Um, and I remember we had uniform for everything back yeah. then. Everything was so incredibly strict. Uh, and I arrived not wearing the uniform on the day one I thought you could wear civilians on day one and I arrived I still remember in this god-awful pink <laughs> pink top pink shorts and pink velcro shoes thanks mum um and instantly I was yeah. not on the right side of the fence yeah. so I was a misfit yeah from the word go yeah total misfit mm. I mean you know what's really weird is I hear anecdotal stories from girls that I went through boarding school with who recall me as confident, funny, um, complimentary things actually. They thought I was the confident kid mm. and I'm struck dumb when I hear that. I'm struck completely dumb mm. and I go, are you serious? Mm, that's interesting. It's interesting. I must have had a good front <clears throat> yes. from the word go. Yeah. In my heart of hearts, I was deeply, profoundly homesick. Yeah. And just forlorn. Yeah. Like I feel like crying just remembering yeah. it. <laughs> and isn't that a good lesson to um, think about 
the way we perceive people mm. is not how they sometimes mm. are or how they're feeling or um, people can put on such brave fronts mm. and not know, we don't know really what's going on inside. Oh, yeah. shocking. Yeah. yeah. I was so sad. That's so interesting. Awful. Um, so how often would you get to go home? Um, I think from memory, it's the first term ever. There was no going anywhere because it was tough love. Mm. Um, but on average, I I would pretty much just go home at the end of each term. So I wasn't a kid that was close enough to my family that they were there and able to be there for no. consistent events. Like I, do you know? It's funny. I um, I have memories of mates from whether it was the neighbouring boys' boarding school or my school, where when when kids were doing certain events or triathlons, it might have been a sport, whatever, mm. whatever it was, and their parents were religiously there because they were either close enough to be able to do that or committed enough to spend their entire life travelling. My goodness, yeah. honestly, I don't know how they did it. Yeah, And I remember standing on the sidelines of, of the oval or, or the theatre or whatever the thing was, watching kids with their parents and just feeling the biggest hole in my heart ever. And I often speak about um, a feeling of emptiness that hit me in my life that young for that reason, that feeling of total disconnect. And I was a smart enough kid to know I hadn't been abandoned and I was deeply loved. Mm. So it was even harder for me to understand why this acute, hollow pain and emptiness mm. Um yeah, it was really it was it was just awful. I hate to say I don't I just don't have great memories. Yeah. And that's not always the way with boarding school. Some kids say it's the best years of their lives and they make such wonderful friendships mm. and great opportunities and things, but then there are also children who are affected in this way. Like yeah. we were. cross a big cross section. Yeah, there. I know both ends of yeah. the spectrum. In, um mm. and you don't remember that feeling prior to that. You, you had, like you said, a really wholesome, loving upbringing mm. before you went away. Yeah, um, <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. Did you make any any friendships at boarding school that um, got you through or did you have relationships with teachers that were, that were significant or was it just sort of troubling along for the six or seven years? Uh, there are some there are some really lovely positive memories thrown into the mix of um, a couple of close friends and a couple of one particular boarding school matron who was just beautiful. She was the kindest lady, oh. and unfortunately, she she wasn't there for terribly long. Um, no, but mostly I felt like I was in jail and I would never get out. <laughs> I mean, I'm so sorry to my boarding school. I think that's just a reflection of. <laughs> The kid that I was, yeah, yeah. I was just a, I was just not built for that. Yeah, I just wasn't. So I think it was just a case of get through it. Yeah. <laughs> and what were your aspirations in those years? Were you always waiting for the next um, break to go home, or were you thinking, when I leave here, I'm going to do whatever career? And um, but did you have big dreams? Yeah. How did you get through it? What did you think of each day? Yeah, no, it's funny. I did not think about the future. I, I didn't have the capacity. Um, it just wasn't something that I did. Um, I just thought 
I can't wait to go home to my horses, dogs, chooks, pigs, mm. um, mum, mm. dad, brother. Um, so pretty much I just lived in in um, uh, joy for a holiday. Yeah. Actually, there was there's one beautiful positive memory that I have actually of boarding school and it's the best story ever. You will love this, Ebony, because you, you're the master of awesome stories. Um. The one thing I lived for was there was a school, a horse riding school called Cotswold Hills um, run by a gentleman called Peter Todd and that was, I think, on a Sunday and I literally lived for the for the days that I could go and get on those horses out there and, and be in that environment. It's like my soul would come alive. And, that um, was out of Toowoomba, Yeah, Yeah, just, just, oh, just on the outskirts, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I remember one day mum forgot to write the permission slip or whatever and the bus came and, and, and a matron said, no, you can't go today, you don't have a slip. I was inconsolable. <laughs> you know when you cry so hard you hyperventilate and then you end up vomiting? Oh. That's how sad I was. Oh, my gosh. I was inconsolable, like grief-stricken. Yeah. <laughs> but those those days spent out there were just literally like a lifeline for me. Um, and how's this for the coolest yeah. coolest part of the story ever? As you know, however many years later that is, like, I don't know, what's 46 minus 11, that many years later, <laughs> Mr. Todd is now one of my closest friends in the world. Yeah, yeah. He's a man who doesn't drink alcohol, who still rides horses, and I still go, and we reconnected about four years ago, and it was the most epic amazing thing when that happened and that's a blooming podcast because itself. he he now lives just outside of Narrabri where we yeah. live yeah. yeah he ended up in the northwest yeah. and um coincidentally um I ran into him in Narrabri one time and put the pieces together and I was just beside myself and um anyway yeah he's now he's now my go-to therapist who yeah. <laughs> I call him my unofficial therapist and <laughs> did he remember you yeah very much so yeah very much that's so, so cool is yeah it? So how did school um, finish up and what were your plans in the, you know, in the year after school? Did you do your HSC? I did. Um, I I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I remember people saying, what are you going to do when you're leaving? I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm doing now. I, I don't know. I can't answer that. Mm. All I knew is that I wanted to get out. Um So I would just... Of that environment. Of that place, that school, yeah. boarding school. I was just like... Get me out of here. And it's funny, I was a very good kid at heart. Like I was never one of the kids who who um, broke out and, yeah. you know, went off to pubs and whatever. Yeah. I was actually quite a nerd. <laughs> mm. But I think rebellion started raising its head the closer I got to the end of grade 12. Mm. And I still remember when the end of school finally was in sight, I just, oh, I was just like, get me out of here. Just get me out of here ASAP. And um, all I can recall clearly is thinking I need to go. And if anyone tries to hold me back or suffocate me or tell me what to do or how to do it or when to do it, I'm going to lose my mind. I just remember seeing those open gates. And thinking this is freedom. Mm. And I was so fixated on the notion of the great big wide world being the solution that it never occurred to me that was actually going to be the beginning of when everything would actually go sideways mm. for good. 
proper. Did anyone ever know you were struggling so much at boarding school? Did you tell anyone that you were so sad? Oh, look, again, back in those days, we just didn't have the facilities that are in place now. There was there was like a token effort of a kind of a counsellory type person here or there, but there just were not the structures and supports and constant checks that are now in place. Like boarding school now is literally chalk and cheese to what it was then. Mm. I know that. Mm. Um, no, mm. no, they did it. And we even had, um, when I was at boarding school, phone calls were monitored, letters were monitored. There was no real opportunity to fully express the grief. Mm. Um, it sounds really archaic and in my opinion it actually was. Mm. Um, so, no, I don't think anyone had a clue. Mm. And I think little baby Shanna all the way back then was experiencing trauma but I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah. Like tremendous grief and trauma of separation, um, confusion, inability to express Mm. anything. And that is, as I say, that's when that first Mm. awareness of a great big empty hole was in my heart. And it's such a pivotal time in your Mm. life, those teenage years, when you're getting to know yourself and making plans for your future and building relationships. Yep. And so years of that sort of... Um, sadness I guess does affect what comes next Um, so did you have any advice or guidance from people around you about what you should do after school or how did it yeah sort of what happened in that the year after where did you go so the only kind of certainty that that I felt and that was a just conversation I had with my nana I did a bit of homeschooling before boarding school with my amazing intelligent nan I have a very amazing, intelligent mum as well, and I think they passed down to me the gift of communication through spoken word or written word, and I think that was always going to be what ended up happening. But ironically, I didn't get good enough marks for journalism or communications, which I wanted to do. Um, So, But the only thing I did know with any certainty was that the second I got out of school is I was not going into another institution, Mm. and I remember having a really big fight with my parents and saying I am not going straight to university I'm not Mm. and I just I was like don't even try Mm. (laughs) and I was um I was hell-bent on taking a gap year and so that's what I did Mm. there was no changing my mind I was independent enough by then to make it so very clear Mm. so where did you go so I ended up pursuing that I still had a mad love for livestock and horses and you know big open country and station life and whatever. Um, So I wanted to pursue that dream. So I ended up on a remote station as a Jillaroo, basically. It was my first stop out of school. Mm. And what were your days like there or what was your role? Oh, just a little dog's body, just a gopher. Um, Yeah, shit kicker Mm. for want of a better word. Um, Yes. Did you enjoy it? Um, I did for five minutes until all of the, until it all went sideways. So as anyone who's listened to any of my previous stuff knows, that's, yeah, unfortunately that turned out to be a very bad time. Mm. Mm. Can you shed some light on that? Um, yes, I sure can. I'm just trying to think, I, you know, we were talking about this before we came on air officially. (laughs) And you always get sick of the sound of your own voice, don't you? You think, are people really interested in hearing all of this? Mm. So it's stupid. I, I'm always uber conscious of keeping things succinct. But 
really the entire backstory of Shanna the alcoholic began that year and it was um and I think it is really important that we delve into this and I will end up crying um because conversations for Ali is all about women oh this is so dumb I told you I was emotional today (laughs) um it's all about women learning how to face things and talk about things and tackle the hard stuff mm. um, and share things yeah. that have happened so others don't feel alone. Absolutely. Mm. And that's the entire reason for our charity, mm. which obviously we'll segue into later. Mm. Um, yeah, because... We have to open up communication so that people who have been through trauma mm. can deal with it and move on. Mm. So for me, that year pretty much ended up being an awful series of traumas. And isn't it so funny? I thought I was escaping <laughs> one set of horrors to freedom, but in fact I was actually just landing in another horror. Mm. And um, for me that was um, I, I lost my virginity to... Uh, date rape and then I was sexually assaulted not once but twice on that same isolated property and so yeah it was pretty it was pretty awful because and as everybody always knows it's always the case it's always people you know and trust and um should be safe with Mm. and as is always the case oh sorry I shouldn't say that as is so often the case it just wasn't like that so Ah, uh, yeah, I was just, God, I was so dreadfully naive. Um, and as I often say to people, um, by that stage of my life, I was 18 and I was a deadly, deadly mixture of confident and outspoken and brash on the surface. That's what people saw. But I was dreadfully naive and dreadfully inexperienced. And underneath that little tough exterior, was a very, very, very fragile kid mm. who had never even begun to process the mm. last seven years. So landing in a situation where um, any remaining sense, I suppose, of innocence or, uh, I don't know, trust or faith or whatever I had left was just obliterated. Mm. Um, and I was now on a station in the middle of nowhere and I didn't have a vehicle. Um, and very much like your beautiful friend, Ali, was convinced I'd, you know, this was my fault, mm. so I had to stick it out mm. and stay. Mm. Um, so I did for as long as I could until um, oh, it's so hard to talk about this stuff because I've never delved into the who and the why and the how and the what of it all. I just keep it very general. But um, when I realised that, my position and my trauma was being treated as a joke and a laughing point for the people on that place. I realised I was trapped somewhere truly bad and I needed to get out. Mm. So I finally broke down and called called mum and dad and said, you have to come and get me. Um, yeah, but it was, um, it was bloody awful. Mm. It was awful. Anyway, so. So did you yeah. put a year in there? Yeah, uh, it was. Oh no, it wasn't a year. No way. It was only a few months. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And then I, um, <laughs> I, I decided because I was still only uh, 
third of the way into my gap year and I thought, okay, well, I'll try and get another job on another place where there are horses. And I ended up in another industry and environment which is notorious for, uh, I guess, promiscuous behaviour and um, I don't know. It's hard. It's so hard to explain this stuff. Ended up on a horse stud sort of thing. And, again, I'm not being specific intentionally because I never have a wish to create hassle um, after the event for, for, for people and places. Mm. That's just my personal choice. Um, but I ended up in an environment that was not ideal and, yeah, unfortunately um, another two sexual assaults happened in that environment. <laughs> and, again, and I'm laughing because it's just unbelievable to me really. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, oh, man, by the time that gap year was finished, I basically... I was basically just, I don't even know how you, how do you explain that? Wrecked. I was just wrecked. Mm. Um, But at the time, we were taught to suck it up and keep going. Mm. You don't talk about this, you don't talk about that, you don't talk about uncomfortable things, you just get on with it. Mm. Um, So you didn't tell anybody? No, no, Mm. not at all. To this day, nobody Mm. is ever accountable for any of the things that happened in that year. And I'm just um, piecing together. I feel like you didn't have um, any sort of significant friendships to this point. Like you didn't have someone that you would always speak to or be able to tell your daily worries or whatever no. to a good girlfriend. Or No, I didn't. No. 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 And I think connectivity these days has made that heaps easy mm. for people. Mm. Um, but, no, I was pretty much isolated. Mm as I had always been from, mm. from that age of 11. So yeah. you're kind of just you're kind of just like a, a sheep thrown to the wolves trying to figure out what to do mm. and where to go next. Mm. And that's kind of how I bumbled on to my university education. Mm. I went, oh, well, God, this isn't exactly the freedom and joy that I was anticipating mm. <laughs> in my gap year. And instead I rolled into university a battered and bruised individual who had sort of fallen from one traumatic thing into another yeah had you applied for uni um and deferred that spot for the 12 months did you apply at school no i i think i just applied halfway through that gap year i can't even remember yeah um gosh that's terrible i think it was just through the year yeah and where did you go i actually went to canberra because i was in the far south of new south wales anyway so i just went yeah someone suggested why not this and I was that clueless as to what to do I went okay that sounds like a fair idea (laughs) and which course did you get into oh I can't even tell you it's too embarrassing no I did a um (laughs) it's so embarrassing (laughs) I did a bachelor of arts in office management (laughs) oh I did not know that that's because I don't want anyone to know oh it's so embarrassing it's the dumbest degree ever (laughs) with wine Office work. Office management. (laughs) And do you know anyone in the world worse at office management than me? (laughs) That's so funny. Isn't it? What were you supposed to be be at the end of that? Um, I don't actually know. (laughs) Probably. Maybe. so funny. Probably a person who was efficient enough to run an office. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the goal in that? Or you literally had none? Nah, there was no goal. It's just like everyone keeps saying, I should go to uni. So. And I actually, what it was, <laughs> I know. Thank it's, you for sharing that. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. 
Um, no offense to people who do do that. No, though, no offense at all. But if anyone who knew me, yeah, yeah. anyone who knows me knows that me organizing myself, let alone an office, is literally the most ridiculous joke in the planet. <laughs> and um, yeah, safe to say it was pretty much a joke. Mm. So university for me was pretty much learning how to drink like a sailor. <laughs> Had you had a drink prior to that year? So I was, I think I said this earlier, a massive nerd. I was a good kid. Mm. And I definitely delved into alcohol in my gap year, but it was not out of control. Um, but ha, rolling into university, um, holy cow, man, O-Week. Um, O-Week was just a revelation. It was mm. like alcohol mm. just alcohol central let's go yeah. let's let's all get as drunk as humanly possible for a week <laughs> pretty much mm. so whatever i'd never experimented with it was mm. on for young and old which still like that's still very normal isn't it mm. in, in that culture it is. it is um so where did you live on campus okay so you know it's funny so here i am arriving in Canberra. Now you've got to understand I was such a little country girl. Um, like I seriously rocked up in flipping boot cut jeans and Cuban heel boots and a checkered shirt in Canberra. And all the other kids were really cool and really trendy. But ironically they thought I was really cool because I was such an anomaly. Um, there were some country kids and of course I naturally gravitated straight towards them. Um, and the, the thing that I remember is for the first time in my entire, entire, entire life, I felt like I'd been accepted. That was the first time I'd felt accepted mm. in uni, at uni, mm. if not encouraged and embraced because almost instantly I realised that if I played up like a pork chop and bought out Shanna the Wild Country Girl, she was very funny and entertaining. Mm. And that is where the beginning of my illustrious drinking career and alter ego as Shanna the Wild slash crazy slash will do anything for a dare slash bloody lunatic emerged. Yeah. So did you go to uni? Like did you do your work and go to lectures and all of that? Yeah, yeah. I'm still a massive Yes. So this is the thing, right? I've always been an undercover nerd. Yeah. So now I was a nerd with a drinking habit. Yeah. So <laughs> I remember, oh, God, if only I could remember the name of my um, lecturer, I'd email her and apologise. Um, I remember we had accounting 1A <laughs> on Friday mornings and Thursday night was bar night. Mm. So, I yeah, I went to all my lectures, mm. but I swear to you that I don't remember going to one single accounting 1A lecture yeah. without an evil, death-defying hangover. Uh, and I can't terrible. even add up mm. basic maths. Mm. So here I am rocking up to accounting 1A with a hangover mm. going, what is even happening in my life right now? Yeah. It was shocking. <laughs> Did you make good friends there? I did, yeah. Um, yes, university really was a lovely, refreshing thing because I don't know why. I think we it's that stage of life where it didn't matter who you were mm. and maybe because it was Canberra, um, 
things are a bit broader scoped than limited sort of country mm. circles, how that, you know, can be very limiting in a country town scenario. Mm. Yeah. No, I did. I made some really cool friends and um, I I had a very, very fun time, mm. really fun time. Mm. I think uni, it's a, you've come out of that really hard time in your teenage years and you've found out a bit more about yourself and who you want to be and, yeah, I think everyone's a bit more accepting and embracing of people's differences, whereas in high school everyone wants to be the same as each other. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so how many years were you there? Three. Three years. And you graduated? Yeah. Amazingly, I yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. I really don't know how. So what happened after <laughs> uni? Um. Well, so it's like there was that good year in there where things were great. But during my university years, I I hooked up with a boyfriend who was from the Northwest, um, a much, much older person who uh, that developed into an incredibly, incredibly unhealthy, abusive relationship. So I left university and followed this person um, for six years, actually. So pretty much went where I was told and um, oh gosh, it's so weird. When I relive this part of my life, I tell you, it's it's not great. Mm. There's some pretty horrible bits in there. Um, yeah, so I was blindly following this much older, charismatic, um, emotionally abusive individual um, who was now I can I can now look back and say was 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 a high functioning alcoholic, and um, yeah, I basically. Ah, spent several years just going deeper and deeper into the abyss of of a lost soul trying to find their way mm. in the worst possible places mm. imaginable. Um, and where did alcohol sit in in that time? Front and center. Was it? Yep. So, um, because this person was much much older, um, his group of friends were much older, and they drank like thirty year olds, and I was not twenty. Mm. So uh, I basically kind of had to step up a decade in my behaviour, which I was not even remotely emotionally equipped for, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, and I was back to that dreadful place of trying to fit in. Mm. Um, so if everyone else was drinking copious amounts, I did that too. Mm. So I very quickly um, found myself losing uh, any sense of identity I'd briefly built in that nice year and a half at university was very quickly being swallowed up in uh, I was pretty much just getting moulded and controlled and manipulated into being, um, I don't even know how to explain it. I was just... I, I being controlled. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I explain my, my 20s as pretty much one disastrous event after another. It was shocking. My 20s were lost to, uh, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, Evs, um, lost to alcohol and and a fog of drifting, moving, relocating um, in this very volatile, abusive, awful, dreadfully dysfunctional relationship, which finally resulted in me escaping, as I call it, at the age of 26. And starting again, again, mm. again. Mm. <laughs> it felt like at the age of 26 I was already mm. a flipping um, PTSD trauma yeah. survivor, you know, You've veteran. 
yeah. a lifetime already. Yeah. Um, did you work in those years? Yeah, I did. Absolutely. Yep. And again, the thread throughout my whole childhood, university, and then those young years was work, 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 work. So my parents had installed a very strong work ethic in me and I never ever dropped that for a second so it's weird I feel like I feel like from the ages of 18 to 28 was inherently a a person with a very good heart with a very strong work ethic striving 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 and just being battered Mm. and battered and battered and battered Mm. um and did alcohol make you feel better or did it just allow you to forget for a time what was how you were feeling or what you were going through? I think alcohol presented as a fun short-term fix in the early days. Um, it, it kind of facilitated a way to fit in and be part of the crowd. But I would say that by my mid-20s, alcohol had its fangs and its hooks deeply sunk into me. But because the crowd that I dwelled amongst were such massive drinkers and the culture was so geared towards massive drinking I did not even know how to identify that that was a massive problem Mm. um it gave me a way to anesthetize emotional pain I couldn't even begin to fathom it gave me a way to escape a trauma that had now been sitting with me for years that I'd had no treatment for no support for no help with and as I was saying it sort of felt like from the age of a teenager through to this, I'd just been on a, on a never-ending, snowballing, growing track of disaster mm. that I could not escape. Mm. Um, and I just continued to turn to alcohol more and more as a way to just numb things I simply couldn't, mm. I just couldn't fathom. Mm. And, you know, these days, and I'm, you've grown up in an era, thank goodness, where your generation has benefited from all of the mistakes of ours, you know, counselling, intervention, um, information, etc. But we still back then, there was no internet. I went through university without the internet. Can you even imagine that? Um, <clears throat> there were no influencers sharing sage wisdom and advice. Mm. So your circle of influence was limited to your circle of influence. Mm. And so if you were hanging around with people who couldn't, give you positive influence you were just you were just being dragged along yeah with what was there in your immediate sphere you know what I mean yeah did you ever consider that um alcohol was that it had a firm grip on you at that point or was it just so normal and you yeah you didn't think about it I didn't think about it because it was my identity and actually what alcohol did was it created an alter ego in me that was the one that could survive. Mm. So when drunk, crazy party girl Shanna hit the scene, she was fearless and fierce and brash and bold and promiscuous and hedonistic. Um pretty much everything I by nature am actually not Mm. you know so I think that what and I mean I've never had a decent psychologist get a hold of me yet to this Mm. day so I'm just bloody doing pop psychology on myself here (laughs) but I think that what happened is the damaged girl created this other character to to deal with and process things and if I put her at the forefront 
she could manage what my completely fragile, sensitive soul could not. Yeah. And it was much easier for me to go into armour with my battle on mm. than expose the fact that I was actually profoundly damaged. Mm. And, I'm, I mean, this is a story as old as time. Mm. It's a story as old as time. People do not drink um, because <laughs> it's making them a better person. They're drinking, sorry, addiction of any kind is masking something mm. almost inevitably. Mm. It's um, it's like there's a famous um, fella called Gable Maté. I don't actually know if that's how you, you even pronounce it properly, but um, he speaks about ask not why the addiction, ask why the pain. Mm. Yeah, so pretty much at the centre of everything was mm. pain, but the alcohol gave me a way to navigate it. Mm. Shocking, mm. ineffective, did lead to me nearly dying, but <laughs> at the time, given the lack of anything else available in terms of anything, it was mm. it was my coping mechanism, mm. yeah. Um, so did you end up leaving that man? Yes, yes, I did. I did. Um, with the skin of my, by the skin of my teeth, I escaped that situation. I, I really loathe to think where I would have ended up had I not escaped. Um, and uh, anyway, so so began phase number <laughs> whatever of my flippant, highly dysfunctional youth. Um, but then, then I kind of pursued a period um, where I basically. It was a bit like the boarding school, boarding school thing all over again. I suddenly was like, if I don't get freedom right now, I'm going to go mad. So it's like I'd become trapped all over again and that same bull at a gate personality was just going, get me out of here, get me out of here, and I just was charging off to seek freedom once again. Um, and I guess what you could safely do there is summarise that for the next few years I continued the pattern of moving and relocating and pursuing things. And so what I can say in hindsight is that I had now come to the realisation of um, I had talent and drive and ambition and a, and a strength, but I couldn't find where I fit. Mm. So I kept doing what they call geographicals. So I was still working in agriculture and moving from one thing to another to another to another. And I kept thinking, well, if I try this job in this town, in this place, everything will be okay. Mm. And what I can tell you as 46-year-old me is that that was me trying to outrun myself. But alas, wherever I went, there I was. Mm. So clearly nothing was fixing itself because I wasn't getting to the root cause of mm. anything. Mm. So I was pretty much just travelling the country in various roles, making interesting friends in interesting places, but I was never putting deep roots down, mm. never. Mm. And as a result of that, forming no long-lasting connections, mm which is also very, very common to people like me mm. who develop alcohol addiction. Um, no lasting connections, no lasting um, systems of support in place because we're just too busy pretending the life of a gypsy is glorious mm. while not being able to figure out that actually that's that's us just on the run, mm. run, 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 run. Um, and I did that till I was 30, yeah. Where did you go? In that time? Mm. Everywhere. Um I realised, I calculated the other day, I've lived in 50 places. Yeah. Um, all over Australia. Yeah. Um, in So basically during my life, I, I'll, I'll rattle it off for you, I've lived in pretty much every state. I've lived in most capital cities and I've lived in a huge portion of rural Australia. Worked in a cross-section of agriculture from broadacre to irrigation to horticulture 
to beef, to sheep, to horses, to <clears throat> to journalism. Uh, God, and then there were random things in there where I was a tour guide yeah. in Alice Springs. Yeah. I was a journalist, I said journalist, didn't I? I was yeah. a water ski instructor at one stage because, of course, that's what you do, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> and it all sounds terribly romantic and glorious and amazing and interesting, doesn't it? Um, but, again, it was just a running lifestyle. But yeah. there were, I need to clarify that there have been some amazing friendships, connections and experiences along the way. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Like now when I travel and in fact, I would have to say, because I spent so long traversing this country, when when I started to build a public profile, no one was ever going to dispute the truth of what I was saying because I pretty much had an Australia-wide reputation yeah. from working all over yeah. rural Australia. <laughs> I'm not saying it was a great one, but it was there yeah. and it was foundation for yeah yeah later and people on. knew. Yeah, um, I was us, unforgettable. <laughs> tell us about the stint in Alice Springs. So that was basically another geographical. Um, <laughs> I'd fought my way to the top of the agricultural scene, um, fighting fighting my way to the top in a male-dominated industry. Um, I don't know what the hell I was trying to prove, seriously, but I was trying very hard. Mm. Um, Is that where you met Tim? Yeah, so so we both worked in similar industries and so, um, in fact, Tim used to come and stay with me when he travelled as a travelling rep. Isn't that funny? He was just a mate. He was just wanting. He was a nice guy. I was not interested. I'm just remembering <laughs> you'd met years prior, had you? Yeah, yeah we had. In Gundawindi or something. Uh, it was actually in Moree at a trade show, an industry agriculture, an ag industry trade show. Yeah. Yeah. But then you met up again in Alice, yeah. is that right? Yeah, so how it went was I knew Tim, or Wannie as I called him back then, and he was just a really nice bloke, so therefore zero interest on my radar. <laughs> Ew, nice guy, whatever. <laughs> I was only interested in pursuing absolute jerks. <laughs> anyway, um, meanwhile life happened and chewed me up and spat me out multiple times until I was a regurgitated palpitated mess of a human. <laughs> um, Very attractive. I know, really attractive <laughs> image, right? <coughs> Excuse me, but it's true. I was a train smash. Yeah. And um, and then it was really funny. Timmy, or Wani, um, our mate, had gone up to the Territory himself. He'd actually ditched his ag career because he wanted to see Australia. And he was, he was like, no, there's more out there than doing what everyone does. Mm. Bless him. Mm. Such a good boy. Anyway, he disappeared up to the Territory and thought, well, if I want to see Australia, I may as well get paid as a tour guide to do it. Mm. So that's what he did. And he was emailing a bunch of us from his old ag days and I was on that group email. And uh, I remember one day out of nowhere he'd sent some photos and whatnot because there was no social media. We had to do it via email because yeah. that's how old we are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. And I replied to one of Tim's emails and I said, man, this tour guiding up there sounds awesome. What have you got to do to do that? I'm just bored and thinking of a change. Oh, my God, did I have any idea what that was going to say in motion? <laughs> and, um, yeah, and he replied and said, oh, it's great, you should do it. Um, and very, very long story short is that led to me deciding that would be my next geographical so I threw my ag career and very well-paying job and Amex and company car down the gurgler and packed my ancient, ancient old ute with a swag 
<laughs> and detoured via Narrabrida collect him to take him back to the top end because he'd been on holidays back in the northwest and he offered to take me with him for a road trip back up there and he said, yeah, I'll take you up and introduce you to my boss and you'll get a job. It's no problem. So I did. Oh, my God. So I followed my mate, Wani to the top end. It was a very long road trip and I realised I'd overlooked a very nice guy, hmm. a really good guy. And... <laughs> <laughs> of course, I got really pissed um, and decided to pass him way too soon. <laughs> this is so stupid, isn't it? And, yeah, I decided I was going to fall in love with Tim. Yeah. Mm. And how did Tim take that? <laughs> <laughs> and you guys listening, do I know you're my sister-in-law? Not yet. Not yet. I might have to say it at the start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... Ebony knows the inside story, guys. Um, Tim was happy to patch me because um, that's what girls and guys do when they're stupid and young, right? Um, hormones dictate things. Mm. But when I decided way too early in the piece to decide to declare that actually he was very special, <laughs> he um, he promptly declared that, oh, that's very flattering, but oh, uh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> He totally, totally palmed me. Because would he see, <laughs> would he have seen the drinking? 100%. Yeah. So, so that was a bit of a deterrent. Big was deterrent. It? Yeah. yeah, massive. That Poor bloke. Yeah. Poor bloke. I said, I'm going to I'm gonna name drop here, Ebs. Um, as I said in my podcast with Mia Friedman, um, the poor bloke didn't realise he'd, he'd hooked up with an alcoholic. Mm. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. He didn't know I was an alcoholic because we didn't know what that even meant, but that's essentially what had happened. And instinctively he knew I was not okay. Yeah. He knew I was a good girl, mm. a good-hearted girl, but he knew I was deeply, deeply troubled on some level. And so in his instinct he was like, oh, damn, I probably shouldn't have kissed this crazy female. Yeah. What's this going to lead to? Yeah. But he had, um, he had, and I had decided he was amazing and, so began the beginning of an extremely, extremely, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Dysfunctional. Dysfunctional relationship. Thank you. I'm glad it was that way. It was totally. Well, that could be offensive. Because people falsely assume the whole time that we've been picture perfect. Mm. And I'm like, ah, no, mm. no, no, no times a thousand. Mm. There is nothing easy about the next chapter of my life. Mm. So how did your relationship become a relationship it was it was just a an awkward series of events <laughs> and a lot of persistence from me <laughs> uh, gosh it's funny um yeah honestly it's there's a 10-year story really in that but essentially just a lot of time a lot of it basically took years and years and years and years and I would have to say that now 15 years on and we've been married since for, for about 10 of those. I would have Ten to years say. next month. Is I'll it have you know. Thank yeah. you. I'm so glad you're here to remind me of my anniversary that I consistently forget. Um, yeah, like I sort of break, I break the time of years with Tim into five-year increments, five years of absolute um, dysfunction, five years of absolute end-stage alcoholism and then the recovery period, which is actually now six years. Yeah. So it's none of it's easy or pretty or romantic. It's just been 
commitment and hard slog and a lot of effort for the reward that we now have. So, But I pretty much just refused to give up on him and then in return he refused to give up on me. How's mm. that for a nice summary? Mm, that's nice. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so did you live, were you in Alice together for a time when you were together? So, yep, we basically lived in Alice Springs in a little townhouse and were both on the road and just sort of crossing paths like ships in the night. Uh, and I think that was for, oh, I don't know, there was about a year there of that going on. And then we relocated back to the East Coast and Tim wanted to pursue running his own tours for a while. And I just came and did whatever jobs I could get in between and yeah, again, more gypsy, more more unsettled, kind of shifting, trying this, trying that, experimenting, a, another long period of unsettled stuff for both of us. Yeah. Mm. And how did it come to the point that you were engaged? <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> it basically came down to me saying, dude, my biological t- clock is going to explode and you need to marry me because it's not fair if you don't. Because <laughs> were you in your 30s at that point? Yeah, yep, mid, mm. uh, 33, I think, when I started really putting the heavies on him. Okay. And and it's funny, isn't it? Like, but And I did. I fully pressured the poor bloke. Um, I was in a full-blown panic. Um, what am I going to do? How's this going to end? Um, and, of course, being the honourable man that he is, he wanted to do the right thing and so we got engaged but it was a disaster because he wasn't there um, and I wasn't there for the right reasons, you know, I was pushing it forward. Where were you living then? Uh, We were in northwest New South Wales, back in the northwest. Yeah. And then (laughs) after another couple of very dysfunctional years, I finally let him off the hook and said, this is the plan of mine ever I'm so sorry I pushed you into this and I realized that was wrong so basically here's here's your freedom have it do the runner you do whatever you've got to do I remember very clearly clearly the day we had that conversation where I gave Tim permission to to get out of the whole thing I was like this is the dumbest thing if someone pushed me into a corner yeah I would not stick around and I've done that to you out of fear total fear and it's not right and I said, um, and, the, and the problem being the alcohol, many what, things, but that was the primary issue. Yep. Yeah. And I just said, um, I remember really clearly saying, um, "There's your freedom. There's the gate. Go your hardest." And I mean that sincerely. And I did. And he knew I meant it. And I said, "If you want to hang around, though, you're going to have to let me know. Otherwise, I need to go and start again because mm. I don't know how many more starts I've got in me." Mm. Um, but it was a really adult, mature discussion. Um, I'm pretty glad it turned out that he wasn't ready to give up on me because if he had at that point said, excellent, I'll take that freedom and run with it, thanks, lady, I don't know. Well, I think I'm 99% certain I would now be dead. Mm. But when he had his choice given to him and knew that I meant it, he came back several days later and said, thank you. I needed the chance to just think about all of this. And he said, how does April sound? Is that when we got married? March. Oops, how's March yeah. sound? <laughs> I got married in April. Thank you. I was confusing myself with you. <laughs> um, and he said, how's that sound for a date? I went, are you kidding me? And he goes, no. He said, I love you. I love you dearly. Um, we've got some work to do, but I don't, I don't want us to not be together. But 
we've got to fix and things. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Gabe, you know, what's the old saying? If you love someone, set them free. If they come back, you know, they are yours. And so that was a good strategy for both of us. We both needed to come back to a point of agreement willingly and we did. And then, yeah, the really hard bit started. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> what do you think his perception was about your drinking at that point? When we got married? Yeah. I think. What, and what role did it play in your day-to-day life? So the one thing people always want to know without fail is how much did you drink, how often did you drink, what did it look like, etc. So I'll just cover that one now. Um, so what had begun as binge drinking as a young girl and a party girl by that stage in my life had become blackout drinking at home. Um, so that had already well and truly begun. Um, I was trying to kind of cover it up. Um, I was working an incredibly busy job as a journalist. So I was doing 14 hour days and then I'd come home and crack a bottle of wine to edit stories at night. And all of a sudden I'd finish that bottle and then I would be starting the second. Mm. And then I'd be falling asleep in inverted commas on the couch, Mm. which is passing out essentially. Um, And that set a tone of more of that to come. Um, But still, despite that happening regularly, we had no idea that that was end-stage alcoholism coming. Mm. So I would would say that we were... We were both in denial, not mm. not by intent, but by lack of education. We were like, oh, there's definitely something wrong with Shan. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knew by yeah. this stage there was something wrong with Shan. Yeah. <laughs> but no one knew how to no. define that, mm. discuss it and proceed with what the hell mm-hmm. to do mm. um, because we all were under the stupid misguided illusion that alcoholics were people who drank out of paper bags in the morning mm. or homeless people. Um <laughs> unbelievable how ignorant we were but mm. I think I could very much safely say that in hindsight I'd been drinking alcoholically from about the age of 25 mm. so I was well and truly up shit creek by 35 mm. well and truly and then we had to consider a family mm. and um wowzers I mean it's so funny I keep hearing this every time I replay this story I just think, gee whiz, it was just a hard bit after a hard bit after a hard bit. It was like 15 years of hard bits. Mm. Um, and anything, excuse me, <clears throat> anything that I thought was hard until then paled into comparison against the challenge of infertility. Um, that's when you entered the scene, mm. remember? Mm. <laughs> well, I entered the scene um, about a year before you got married. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I, I didn't, like you said, I, um, I could tell that there was something wrong and people talked about it, but yeah, we, and I don't remember ever thinking you were an alcoholic either. That Mm. just wasn't, didn't enter our minds. It wasn't an option for a thought, but we just did think, well, she drinks a lot and it's really bad when she drinks and it, you know, wrecks wrecks events and all sorts of things, interrupts relationships and yeah. whatever. But, um, yeah, it sort of it did – it really escalated from from that point. In, yeah. But that's only in my – Memory. Yeah, well, even in, in our – in your – you know, in the time that I've known you. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah. I could have comment on the prior yeah, well, that background. Was, it was a pretty yucky bit um, mm. when you got there. Mm. Um, I even remember your wedding day. You know, we were looking forward to it, but people were really worried if you were going to be drinking and mm. what that was going to look like. And I remember you trying so hard not to drink at your wedding. No. And, you know, I certainly did and I had a wonderful time. Mm. Um, but the next day, you know, some people were saying that you did drink really, really late after everyone had gone to bed. Yeah. So you must, you just couldn't not put it to bed. No. Yeah. And, yeah, you were really disappointed. But at that point I didn't understand why you were mm. worried about that. Mm. Yeah. Because you were trying so hard for Tim. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Isn't I remember it, that. Isn't it funny? The one thing that I will now say when I speak with the loved ones of alcoholics is to say it doesn't matter how much somebody wants to give up for you, it will never work if that's the motivation. They have to do it because they have to do it for themselves. Mm. If they're trying for someone else, mm. it will never, ever work. Mm. And at that stage I was trying for everybody else. Yeah. Um, uh, Which yeah. is natural, I think, especially when you love people, you want to do the right thing for yeah. people that you love and try and, and if that's not enough, if you can't try hard enough for your husband-to-be, for example, then, you know, especially if you've got high standards of yourself, then that's disappointing and that's you. And that's exactly it. You know, you're, you're so acutely aware that you're falling short of the mark. And I must tell you, if I had a dollar for every time in that 10-year period of our first 10 years together that someone said, oh, so you're Tim's wife slash girlfriend, whatever, gosh, you're very lucky, aren't you? Mm. <laughs> I would be a millionaire. Mm. You know, the subtext was always, goodness me, you're punching well above your weight. How'd you snag him, mm. you know? Um, oh, I'll tell you, that was a frustrating thing to hear over and over, but it was fair call. Mm. It was a fair call. Anyway, um, as you just said then, and anyone in the family knows that I tried very, 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 very hard again and again for many years to try and figure out what was wrong, what's going on, why am I like this, why am I broken? Um, and I think it wasn't until we tried to start a family that I really tried in earnest to cut back or to quit alcohol because clearly I was never going to fall pregnant drinking like I was and even I was astute enough to know that was a disastrous idea yeah um and I think that's when I realized because it was the only time in my life I'd ever been fully motivated by something so much bigger than myself and I realized that I I could do periods of sobriety remember yeah. I used to go I'd go for weeks sometimes yeah. I went for months yeah but ultimately yeah I would relapse and during that period the cause of relapse was a fertility failure yeah and for every failure, the relapse and the descent was swifter mm. and swifter and swifter until everything escalated to a point where uh, I think it was as I was just after 40, actually, um, I realised I didn't even want to live anymore. It felt, like, it felt like my whole life had been a series of just fighting and struggling and fighting and struggling and surviving mm. and to have lost... The one thing that I had really always held closely, which was to be a mum, and you've seen me with your kids, you know, mm. I children are just 
the most precious thing in this world. Mm. So the loss of hope there and the realisation that I was so powerless over alcohol that it was going to cost me my family that I couldn't have, what happened is I think all of the repressed resentment and rage and grief uh, that I'd carried since the age of 18, or actually, no, probably the age of 11, really, finally all caught up on me. And I think my drinking and destruction just went next level. I, It was a grief I couldn't process. Like I'd, I'd done a pretty good, good job until that point in my life to pick myself up and dust myself off and go again and again and again and again. Yeah. But to not be able to have children and to connect it back to that original trauma and, and, and like I said, to connect, connect those dots, oh, wowzers, I just, yeah, like I just said, rage, resentment, grief mm. and inability to want to live. And it was blackout drinking. Is that what? Is that a term? Yeah, it is a um, term, yep. Where it wasn't just like at parties yep. and it might not have been to take the edge off anymore. Mm. It was yep. to... To wipe out. Yeah, so it escalated yeah. to I am no longer drinking for the taste or the joy yeah. or the social aspect. I am now removing myself from social situations, mm. going to my home, locking the door and consuming as much alcohol as possible, as yeah. quickly as possible because I want oblivion. Yeah. That's how it worked yeah. in the end. And, um, um, yeah, pretty much I wasn't able to drink without getting blackout drunk. Yeah. It wasn't possible. No. It was terrible. Mm. You saw the worst of it. And how long did that go on for? Oh, that, that period. Gosh. Um, yeah, it was a few years. Yeah, that really catastrophic. End Probably stage about thinking. four. Yep. Do you think? Yeah. I think about four. Yep. Yeah. How I didn't die. Yeah. I will never know. No. Uh, miraculous, miraculous, near death escape after near death escape. I had so many injuries accidents, crises, yeah. disastrous family um, blow-ups, mm. like all end-stage alcoholics, I had moved into the phase of complete selfishness, self-destruction. Um, I no longer cared for anyone or anything enough to even try. Um, it, was, it, was, it was horrific, mm. horrific. Mm. And I think... Um you know, if I comment on this, I think I'm saying it with with the intention that if someone is listening who might find this story similar to mm. what they might be experiencing or mm. they might know someone in that situation, it's mm. useful to know. But I remember Tim, it felt like he didn't even know what to do in the end and he sort of signed off and he was away a lot and he we couldn't get on to him and we were so worried all the time and we were needing to check on you all the time. It sort of was like a full-time job in the end and yeah. we'd try and ring him and say, Tim, she's done this, this is happening. Yeah. And, yeah. and he just did not know what to do, so mm. he just left. And he was away for work a lot, but I think it wasn't like it was quite intentional because he was just burnt out. Yeah. And none of us knew what, what on earth to do. It was just spiralling yeah. so fast and yeah. it was so destructive, Yep, just terrible for everyone. When I listen to this, I can hardly remember who that girl yeah. was now. Do you feel like that? Well, in my mind it's always like I know this story 
about this girl. Yeah, but I don't, I don't <laughs> recognise that that was you at all. But I know that at some point in my life, this crazy stuff happened mm. for a period. And and you know what? And that's the thing. Tim was doing what so many family members of alcoholics do, which is his loyalty is to me. And mm. so he would cover for me and defend mm. me and and try and pick up the pieces. Um, I mean, the poor bloke. Mm. You talk about burned out. I don't know how he didn't have a breakdown. Uh, well, I guess he did in his own way. In his own way, he, he was just lost in the mm. wilderness with me, the poor mm. fella. Um, yeah, and, and that's it. It was like our lives were just plummeting. And I've said to many people that I told him in those last several years, time after time, you need to leave. Mm. I actually told him that again and again, you need to leave. I can't I can't get better. Mm. I don't know what to do. Mm. And I, I, I didn't want to leave, but I didn't know how to die. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just hopefully one of these days something terrible enough will happen that I will wake up dead. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I felt. I was suicidal but not brave enough to pull the trigger. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty horrific. A shocking place to be in. And, you know, what you were just saying before, um, what's immensely tragic about this is this is a very, very, very common story. But Mm. when people look and sound and walk and talk, like a normal human in daylight hours. So I was living that double life. I could go and present in front of a crowd of a 1,000 people with full hair and makeup and be extraordinary and witty and funny and dazzle people and then go home and convert myself into whatever the hell that was. Mm. And then I would get up the next day and repeat it. Mm. And because I was functioning... Mm high functioning which it's it's a dodgy term i don't love it actually that much as a term because that's what the perception was mm. i wasn't high functioning at all i was holding together a, a life of lies by a piece of dental floss mm. and and the press you know the edge was just coming mm. i was i was inches off falling into the abyss mm. um yeah, yeah full on hey very bad um mm. so what what was the turning point then or or what happened to um yeah to change that ever rolling series of events that had been happening for 20 plus years <laughs> um so for quite some time i'd been attempting to sort out the alcohol thing i had tried oh, whatever you could possibly imagine i had tried and the only thing i hadn't tried was to reach out to uh, AA, which is the only thing I'd avoided, like the bubonic plague, because I had so many stigmas in my mind about that what, about what that was or was not. Um, and one day I rang a helpline and explained my situation and said, look, I'm pretty desperate. I think this is, this is my last roll of the dice. And the fellow I got onto in their Sydney head office said, oh, yeah, that's fine. We'll get hold of somebody like this is what we do, this is why we're here. He was lovely, actually. And he said, where are you? I'll find your nearest meeting and that'll be a great start for you. And he sort of tapped on his keyboard and then went, oh, yeah, there's one here. How far are you from Tamworth? And I just laughed because it's like 300 k's from where Mm. we were. But I was desperate enough that I rang the number I'd been given. And what happened after that was a series of events that ended up basically saving my life. 
And it came down to meeting a girl who had suffered chronic end-stage alcoholism, who had gotten herself sober and healthy and well, and she shared her story with me. Mm. A connection with another girl who had been there, who looked and walked and talked and sounded just like me. You know, Ali, you've met Ali, absolutely divine girl, Mm. attractive, well-groomed, fit, career person. And I'm not saying that with judgment. People must never assume that. Why I explain that is because I was expecting that if I went to meet what they call a recovered alcoholic, it would be somebody old with holes in their coat. I was just so full of ignorant misconceptions that Hollywood have sold us our whole lives. Mm. I did not expect an amazing, vibrant, young, healthy woman, Mm. and that's what I got, and my mind was blown to smithereens Mm. when that beautiful girl and her beautiful partner stepped forward and introduced themselves and declared that they had both come through alcoholism. Mm. I I simply couldn't believe it. Mm. And that was like a small gate opening. And then that ended up throwing my entire story into a totally different lane. How's that, though, to think that after all those years of all those attempts and all those conversations with, oh, God, I can't tell you how many failures I had with psychologists and professionals and doctors and friends and family how many self-help books, Um, (coughs) excuse me, a conversation with someone who'd been there. Yeah. Literally lit up the entire planet. So did you you then realise that you were an alcoholic? Is that the day you realised or before then? No, it it was basically having spent several weeks in communication with, with this beautiful girl called Ali. And then um, finally receiving the real talk and education that I'd never had prior to then. And I suddenly went, well, if this is alcoholism, then I've got it and I'm no longer interested in pretending I don't. So it led to education and awareness and acceptance. Mm. And from a point of acceptance, I was able to step through and say, I now choose to want to change this because if other people have come through this, I can learn And I'd never, ever previously had access to anyone who spoke to me Mm. in a way that made sense. And so it was just ridiculous. It was like this epiphany um, delivered straight from heaven into my brain from this amazing girl. Yeah. It was a game changer. And what was was Tim thinking at that point? So we had been in Termworth and I'd attended a meeting with Ali and I had shared in in a group meeting that I um, was ready to completely acknowledge where I was at and I wanted help. And he couldn't believe it. He was beside himself. He was so thrilled, but he was completely nervous and terrified Mm. as well. He was extremely hopeful, but probably 50% doubtful as well. Very few people who'd gotten to as far towards the end of the road as me make it back. Yeah. The statistics are horrifying. Yeah. 3%, I think. And I actually remember as clear as day sitting and and, and turning around to Ali and her partner Dan and saying, I will be in that 3%. I want to live. I want to fight. Yeah. And I declared that to Tim. Um, But I, I don't know, it's like overnight I was given wisdom I'd never before had and I said, I know you have no right to believe that this time will be different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you knew in yourself that something had shifted. 
<clears throat> I knew 100% that something massive yeah. had shifted. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, it, it was totally a miracle because, as you and I both know, nothing survives in darkness. Mm. And as soon as you expose something, especially a dirty, dark, shameful secret, and you bring it into the light, mm. it loses its power. Mm. And I chose to bring it into the light and to stop living in lies and deception and denial mm. and to speak absolute truth. Mm. And what you'll find in modern terminology is a lot of people won't even use the word alcoholic anymore. We have to refer to it as alcohol use disorder or addiction, whatever. Mm. And that's fine. That might work for some people. But for me, I had to boldly claim what was going on mm. and just own up to it, mm. you know, face it square on. Because I know um, when you were heavily drinking, there was so much, like your behaviour was so unacceptable with mm. um, with not telling the truth mm-hmm. and manipulating situations and yep. whatever. So trust for your friends and family was really hard to have after all of that had happened. 100%. Yeah, and, and so you were sort of really up against it. If you knew in your heart that things were different and nobody would have had any faith no. at that point anymore, mm-hmm. then that is a very hard mountain to climb in that, like with your relationships. Big time. That takes a long time. Yeah, and, and I, and I'm again, I'm very thankful that Ali shared her experience about that. And I knew as soon as I started facing the destruction of everything, I was starting from behind the back blocks in Mm. every single way. Absolutely no one had a a single ounce of respect, trust, faith. Mm. People loved me. Even those I'd hurt the most still loved me, Mm. but they simply couldn't believe a word that came out of my mouth. And you're dead right. Um, When people are in the height of addiction, they will definitely manipulate and lie and do whatever they can to justify their behaviour. Mm. It's part of the disease cycle. It's shocking. Mm. The things that I did as a drunk, <laughs> um, I should say a sick, desperate alcoholic, mm. were just so beyond the realm of what I could even imagine right now that I just I don't even have words for it. Yeah. I was that sick. I was that sick. I wasn't even me anymore. I was another person inhabiting a broken shell. And... I think it took two years before Tim could ring the house. Let's say he was away on business. Historically, when he went away on business, that was my green light to just drink as much as I could because no one was there to pull me up. Yeah. And I remember a few times in those first couple of years, which, by the way, we planned and planned and planned and planned. We built a a very solid structure um, for recovery. Nothing was done without huge caution and care, like... Everything was was just ridiculously, meticulously uh, planned, you yeah. know. So, you know, for instance, when he went away, there were checking times for his sanity, yeah. you know. Um, we no longer went out after 5 p.m. to places that served alcohol and we didn't permit people to come to our house that were going to drink, blah, blah, blah. We had to change everything, like yeah. literally everything. And we were very upfront with our friends and said, look, this is how it has to be. Yeah. If we don't do this, Shen dies. If you can't accept it, that's all good, but we can't do anything other than this. Yeah. So we had all these structures and foundations in place. and But I remember a couple of times in those first two years, if I happened to not answer my phone a couple of times at around the 5 o'clock mark, mm. poor Tim would mm. go into a spiral of complete panic, Yeah. absolute panic. 
and think that I had fallen off the wagon. Yeah. Um, at about the two-year mark, that shifted. Yeah. Um, with family and friends, it took um, a little bit longer again. Uh, there are, oh, gosh, you'd have to, it might be interesting for people to hear your perception on how long it took for you, Ebs. I mean, the story with. Yeah. Yeah. A few years. Mm. Well, so it's six years next month. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, at least two. Mm. But that came with not just you not drinking anymore and we're trusting that you don't drink, but it came with a whole change of every aspect of your life. So, yeah, everything had to change and your approach to life and how things were treated and everything. And um, it's just been a big six-year journey <laughs> hasn't it yeah and it's been, we we've loved being a part of it to be honest in the end and um it's just it's it's remarkable to see the change and like you said when we talk about those years that you were drinking so badly like I have memories of things that are just out of this world mm. And unless you say it and people hear some of the situations that we found ourselves in, you couldn't dream of, of those things happening. Um, mm. So it's been a long, a really long journey. But, um, yeah, and, and like we said earlier, it's hard to imagine that that really happened because you're an entirely different person. Um, I feel like sometimes... I've been restored to the person I was meant to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the little girl. Yeah. The little girl at age 11 mm. is finally an adult. An adult. <laughs> <laughs> and finally has a way to live. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the most powerful stories I share with people is that your choice to speak to me, do you remember, um, and I always cry when I share this one in <laughs> keynotes, hey, always, always, always. Um, is is you did a very smart thing one time in a visit by saying that until I got better and you, you, you structured it beautifully and this is very helpful for people who love someone in my shoes. Um, you very kindly said one time um, that until I got help and was better, it would be best if you and Pete didn't bring um, you didn't come for visits after five o'clock at our house because it was too scary and too upsetting and you never knew what was going to be happening and you were just desperately concerned. Whatever you said, it was very kind, very, very um, well said and I remember being so offended and so upset by that that I didn't speak to you for ages because my alcoholic brain had decided how ridiculous, how could you possibly say that? I mean, honestly, how stupid. Yeah. But that's how it was. Um but that was actually a profound motivating factor for me in the end because I realised if somebody wasn't bringing their child to my home out of fear, I realised I was at a tipping point of being someone inconceivably awful. And even though I pr- prided myself on always being wonderful with kids, I knew I was at a, I, I knew I was on a yeah. slippery slope to no longer being trustworthy. Yeah. Ever. No, and that was. Hmm. I don't know. So I, when I think about that myself, I was um, I was about twenty eight, hmm. and 
as as much as that's not very long ago in the scheme of things, I also feel um, quite young and and inexperienced with these things. And now I think, now that we've gone through a lot, I do think I might not, I don't know, I might have, well, I, you know, I sort of think, oh, I wish I, if we knew that you were an alcoholic and that we could do things, we would have handled the situation entirely differently. But we did have a baby mm. and I was very, I still am, I have very high standards about what our kids see and who they're around mm. and mm. and um, I'm quite strict on a lot of things, I think, in in this modern world. Um, and, yeah, I well, I remember the particular day. It was the day, it was the last time you drank mm. because Pete went to your house to have a swim and I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon and I was I was at home with Bridie who was only six months old and he'd been at work at, and it was very hot so he just thought he'll duck and you always said I just want people to come over and visit and just drop in anytime and blah 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 yeah. so he was like well I'm gonna just go for a swim quickly and whatever and he rang me and he said no one's here and there's blood everywhere and there's broken bottles of wine and he'd tried to ring Tim but Tim wasn't answering and you of course weren't answering and it was very stressful and we ended up ringing the hospital and you were there and that was that was a, a really bad day for you mm. Tim had found you and taken you to hospital mm. and that's when yeah, I just thought this is because that's off the back of months of really mm. bad things like that. Mm. And I thought we can't just keep, we can't drop in if we're going to find like, you know, our unconscious auntie all the time and yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, I just, I, I remember thinking quite clearly this is not the environment that I want our children in. And I was just really firm on that. But that was also off the back of I felt in my uneducated, naive experience that I had tried to help you over the years and I had tried to do different things and support you in different ways in, in you know, however, whatever skills I had, which was minimal. And I just thought, that's it. You've got to sort yourself out because I have this child to look after now and mm you're her auntie and this is not acceptable. <laughs> and so that was quite harsh and and that's what I mean. Like I don't know that I would do exactly that again because like well, anything, you grow and learn and whatever. But my primary instinct and purpose for that was to protect my child because I didn't want – you know, I think with kids people think, oh, they're too little, mm -hmm. they won't – no or whatever whatever but I always think well when is the day that they suddenly become aware that this person drinks or mm. this person does that or whatever and I believe it's from birth you're scaffolding a person from birth mm. and I just didn't want her around that because it was when we would go to your house it was very difficult quite often in the end mm. with with the situation we would find ourselves in and that's and that's for some you know somebody listening may have ex well will definitely have experienced a similar thing that horrendous 
torture mm. of when you love mm. a person who is addicted to whatever. Mm. It is hell. It is total, total hell. Mm. Um, I think you did it perfectly, to be honest. It was very clear. It was a boundary that had to be mm. laid down. So I wouldn't overthink that. I would actually commend you because you showed wisdom a lot of people don't have. And what that – so a, a classic mistake a lot of people make is they try to gently facilitate soft options and whatever, and at a certain point that that has no impact. And until someone like me makes a decision to take action, there's nothing that anyone else can do. And so, you know, sometimes um, uh, a final kind of statement like that actually helps us to hit rock bottom. Mm. And there's, gosh, I tell you what, you could delve in, into the internet and research how to help people addicted to substances until your eyeballs popped out of your head. There's that many different theories and philosophies um, and people could argue about this until mm. forever. But for me, I was a classic case of I needed to hit rock bottom, I needed to have zero options left and I needed to make a choice. Yeah. You die or you live. Yeah. And things like that brought me to that final place of I can't yeah. do this anymore. Yeah. I have to stop. Yeah. How can I do that? And so things like that actually were a tremendous kick in the guts that I needed. Mm. So, you know, from, from the point of meeting Hallie and getting education and getting awareness and taking action, everything changed and you guys have seen that. Yeah. Um, and it, here's a beautiful twist to the story, it, which was when you and Pete asked me to be godmum to little Percival. Mm. I tell that story, and again, I can hardly ever tell it when I'm speaking <laughs> publicly without yeah. bursting into some kind of emotional state because that is the ultimate forgiveness, healing, and and, and verification that the most broken person yeah. can come back from the edge of hell to a place of That's restoration. Right. Yeah. It's, and, it's special. Oh, because um, we didn't. We didn't even trust you, and I hate to say it was you because I don't feel like it was you, but <laughs> I, we wouldn't leave our children or Bridie, I should say, because Percy wasn't born when you mm. were drinking. We wouldn't even leave Bridie in the room with you in the mm. end because yep. we just didn't know what was possible. Yeah, and, and we thought enough. everything was possible actually. Yep. And so there was zero trust, like the most untrusted person. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then for us, I remember when we were talking about who we would want to be godparents to Percy, who was born, um, I don't know, maybe two or three years after mm. you stopped drinking, mm. probably two and a half. And, um, yeah, and we both just said Tim and Shen. <laughs> and I remember Pete and I just thinking, how odd, like what a, what a turnaround <laughs> that that's who it is in the end. And we just thought, yeah, it was just really lovely for us too. And we really wanted to give that to Tim as well. Mm. Yeah, so that was very special. And it is so special. And, and I, people who have been to the end and lost everything, including people's trust and faith, mm. cannot imagine mm. another, another way. They just simply mm. can't. Um, and so I try and share stories like that to say to people, Give it time, continue working, be yeah. relentless in the pursuit of your sobriety and people will see. Yeah. And eventually all of that broken trust and all of those broken things will mend. Yeah. 
most mostly like every now and then situations will arise where some people refuse to forgive and that's something some people have to come to terms with yeah to this day that's never happened to me I have never I've never been in a situation where when I have actually gone to somebody with my hat in my hand and said here I stand before you with my hat in my hand just broken and ready to apologize and ask forgiveness it's always been given it's so powerful Mm. for people to just Mm. say I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I was an alcoholic, yeah. suicidal, train smash. I now understand yeah. what that is, what that meant, how I got there. Yeah. I'm now working to change it. Yeah. And a lot of people, like I said, were expecting me to fall flat on my face for yeah. a very, very long time. Um, yeah, and yet but here we are. But it's very powerful and effective to say, to admit your mistakes or your flaws yeah. or your problems. Yeah. To own them, take responsibility, say I'm sorry yeah. and put in place measures mm. to move forward in a different direction and and you don't know how many people are watching that. You know, and, and that's exactly right. Isn't it funny? One of the things I said to Tim, I think it was about two years in, I got really, really bad itchy feet and I said I need to leave Narrabra. I can't be here anymore. I hate it. I hate it. Um and I felt all of this accumulative shame yeah. um, mounting on me like just it was just terrible piling up on me. Mm. And Tim put his foot down and said, no, he said, you have to face this part of your life. Mm. You cannot run anymore. And I was so angry. We had a big <laughs> ding dong. Yeah. And I said, I don't want to be here. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and I still remember him saying to me, he said, Shan, in time people will remember what they see most recently and he said the more times you are seen in public at events in Mm. life doing xyz a b and c that's going to be what people remember Mm. and there will come a day where they might reference your past Mm. but they will only remember what they know of you Mm. and the longer you're sober Mm. blah 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 and he talked all of this annoying common sense yeah and um i had to stick with it and um, it's very true. Um, and the, here's the actual joyful part of, of, of becoming a successfully long-term sober person is that you regain self-respect eventually mm. and you regain self-worth. And all mm. of a sudden, one day, you're looking around you at people who've previously given you nothing and suddenly you realise you want nothing from them anyway. Yeah. You step away from that uh, horrendous cycle of people-pleasing a desire to fit in, a desire to be a friend to this person or that person, you step back and go, goodness gracious, Mm. what the hell was I wasting my time Mm. on? You just get this freedom from so much. Yeah. And I think people Mm. actually don't care as well. Like you, people only care for a short time about what's happening in somebody else's life and then they just move on. Yep. But for you, it's your everyday and, and for Tim and, and your close family. But other than that, like that's long gone. Yeah, people are it's, so fixated on their own yeah, um, lives. It's not a, I think issues. sometimes we get a bit worried about what people think or what people might mm. be talking about, mm. but really nobody, yeah, we've all got our own things to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so how did Sober in the Country come about and <coughs> what what are you working towards there? Yeah, so people, um, you know, often want to ask how I became, yeah, the, the founder of a national charity called Sober in the Country. And it's um, it came about because 
as a as a person from the country who had to overcome alcoholism without help, without connection, without any tools or education, I went, well, this is pretty stupid. <laughs> I know I'm not the only person with a problem with alcohol in the country. Yeah. And um, it came about, Ebbs, because I remember sitting um, in one of my 50 homes <laughs> that I've lived in <laughs> and um, I remember sitting there going, okie dokie, so this is interesting. I'm a 41-year-old woman <laughs> with no family. I've got a great, great brain in many ways. Here are my skills. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. And I kind of just, it was like putting all the ingredients in a bowl and going shake, shake shimmy shimmy and yeah. in the end I was like right so you can speak publicly you can write really well you can do this blah 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 and in the end I was like how could I combine those things to help other people because a primary driver in my life from the very day that I that I began to to overcome all of this was to help other people and to make a difference and to serve other people it's a very basic premise of recovery actually is to help others and um, I thought, well, I'll just use all those things. So, yeah, Sober in the Country began as me just sharing a few things very tentatively and quietly on social media, um, and it evolved over time. So, as you know, I'm coming up to my sixth year sober anniversary um, on the 22nd of February, and from day ground zero, should I say, to now, what began as just sharing candidly a few thoughts about life is now um, a conversation that's going national and impacting and changing lives from one end of Australia to the other, mm. not because of me being the answer or the solution or anything even close to perfect. We all know that's a laughable bloody concept, um, but because someone's driving a conversation that needs to be driven. Mm. And, in fact, from that very imperfection other people are given permission to look at what's happening in their lives. And, and it's essentially started a conversation that had to be started. Mm. And I think who better to do that than someone with not one single thing left to lose or mm. prove? Mm. <laughs> um, who better than the most broken of them all? Mm. Um, and I know this is going to sound terribly cheesy, but I've, I will say to anybody very freely that I know my life was spared so that I could do what I'm doing. Yeah. It's the miracle that was given to me to give to others. Yeah. So I pretty much am amplifying uh, what Ali did for me. Yeah. I'm giving other people a connection point and hope. Yeah. And we lose 6,000 people every year in Australia to alcohol-related illness, injury and death, mm. 6,000 every year. Um, and a huge disproportionate percentage of those people live in remote and rural Australia mm. and there's so many initiatives and things in place in heavily densely populated areas but you come west and and just the challenges mm. are just insurmountable the barriers to help are insurmountable or mm. seemingly insurmountable um so what does sober in the country do so we sort of have two major focuses one of them is to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer support, which is a fancy way of saying mates helping mates. So when I first started my sobriety journey, I did what every single person told me to do, which was to start my own support meeting and help people that way. And it became very apparent very quickly that I might catch one person every two years if I was lucky. Mm. No one can be anonymous in a country town. Mm. So it was a disaster. Um, and no one was going to walk in the door and be not anonymous. Mm. 
Um, so I started using the power of the internet to bring people together online. Um, and that's evolved into, a, like I said, what um, we call peer-to-peer support. Uh, we, have a, we have an awesome platform now where people, hundreds and hundreds of Aussies, gather and talk the truth with each other. Mm. So that's we facilitate that connection. And we do broad-scale um, advocacy, which is me speaking publicly, mm. endlessly, mm. like over six years, 15,000 hours worth of just relentlessly speaking about the truth of alcohol in the bush. Mm. Um, and the third thing we do is we have a, a national campaign called the um, It's Okay to Say No. So, again, we're just publicly educating people that if someone says no to a beer, it's not the end of the world. Mm. Some of our mates simply can't drink. Mm. So I'm trying to tip everything on its head through the charity and we are now a national registered charity. Um, and in the same way, say something like Are You Okay Day paved a way for people to talk about mental health. We're paving a way forward for people to talk about alcohol mm. and making it all right for our mates who don't want to drink mm. for whatever reason. So we need to... We're breaking down stigmas and boundaries and barriers. Yeah. We're gathering people and letting them share their stories, connecting others. And I think the critical element in how Sober in the Country has done much more effective work than, you know, say um, government organisations driven from people who've never lived through it is that we're out here, we're boots on the ground and it's coming from a lived experience point from people who actually know Mm. how horrendous it is to overcome booze in a culture that is completely utterly obsessed and focused on booze yeah very effective yeah and we just and the other beautiful thing is often when I get invited to speak somewhere I know for a fact people in that audience are expecting me to sorry are expecting me to evangelize prohibition and they can't believe it when I joke and have fun and make fun of myself and I say we're not here if you can enjoy a beer, mm. we don't care. Mm. That's not for us to comment on. Yeah. We're here for our mates who can't yeah. because they're the people falling through the cracks and you don't even know who they are and some of them are your closest friends. Yeah. So the, the charity is very laser-focused on the bush but it's very laser-focused on people like you and I mm. and those of us who are very busy people who, who have a, um, a family or a business or a farm or whatever's going on that have these busy lives and are expected to keep getting up and showing up when actually their lives are falling apart. Yeah. But because they're presenting to the general public as looking okay, mm. they get missed mm. again and again and again and again. Mm. And I love that it's okay to say no because, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen it myself and I still do and I always think of that mm. that little slogan mm. sometimes like friends of ours or if we're at a social function somewhere in town or at different places and if somebody's uncomfortable to have a drink but they're worried about what people might think about that, like it's saying it, it's so ridiculous, but it's mm. just nice to say it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think when you think about alcoholics, um, if they haven't heard your story or heard you speak, you think that alcoholics can never be around alcohol again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, and that that might be frightening if you're an alcoholic or you think you might have a problem, mm. you would be thinking, well, I don't know what the, if I stop drinking, what does the rest of my life look like? Because so many people around me love mm. to have a mm. beer. Does that mean mm. I can never be near them again? Yeah. 
and that that must be so overwhelming but I don't know in all cases it may not be but certainly for you you are able to socialize and carry on as normal with no problems being around um oh well not ridiculous drinking behaviors but certainly within our family for example we're able to have a drink and it's no problem yeah and and that's exactly right a lot of people cannot even imagine what life look looks like Mm. and that's a huge part of our advocacy as well is I will share stuff from myself or others wherever I can get a hold of it to say guys life doesn't stop when you yeah when you stop drinking and actually start yeah however there have to be certain things set up in order for that to occur so it took me years to get to that point yeah but today Shannon won I go, I go anywhere and do whatever I like. Yeah. However, if at any given point I feel uncomfortable, and and by the way, for the record, I don't wish or desire to have a drink anymore. Yeah. I haven't felt that way for six years. Yeah. I would never do this. Yeah. Unless I felt that secure. Yeah. Um, a lot of dry drunks would would not understand this concept. And when we talk about dry drunks, those are people who are not drinking, but they're very very miserable. And they wish that they were. Yeah. And I was like that for many years. It's a special kind of hell. Yeah. So when you do overcome that and become happily, joyfully sober, it's just a different life. And that's where I am now. And there are beers in the fridge today in our house. I could care less. It's like looking at gluten-free bread versus regular. Yeah. I just don't care. It's irrelevant to me. But there are strict boundaries in my life too um, that I now have in place and I make no apologies. If I'm in a situation where people are out of control and I'm not comfortable, I simply leave. And if someone challenges me, I will stand very straight and tall and look them in the eye and explain why I'm leaving. Yeah. So I have the strength now for all of that, but I wouldn't have, you know, so it's a systematic process. Yeah. But people absolutely need to know that there's a way to overcome this and to get healed and to come out the other side. But it requires all of these things that we've spoken about. And, um, again, through the charity, what we're doing now is, like, someone said to me the other day, what is your ultimate mission? Like, what is it that when you've achieved it you can just rest? And I said, oh, that's easy. I dream of a day where a man walks into an outback pub (laughs) and says no thanks to a beer and that is the end of it. Yeah. I don't ever want to see or hear the phrase you can't trust a man who says no to a beer ever again yeah it is the most disgusting thing a man can say about another man and yet it happens every day Mm. all across the bush and you know I've got a beautiful friend who's several years sober actually I've got a handful of guy mates who are who are several years into their own sobriety and um you know they've come into situations where they have been abandoned socially because people are that profoundly uncomfortable with their choice to be sober. Mm. It's ridiculous. Mm. We are that far behind the eight ball on this discussion. And so Shanna, the CEO of a charity, is I am fearless about breaking that down and changing it. Mm. And the day the day I reckon I'll rest is the day a man walks into a bar and says no, and that is it. Yeah. And we've got a long way to go, but holy cow, Ebbs, like you've seen this. Yeah. This little nothing broken train smash with nothing but a laptop. Mm. Look where this charity it's going is today. Places. It's going national. Yeah. We're being invited to stations. We're being invited into the heart of rural Australia. 
because people now know there's no judgment, there's no condemnation. This yeah. is not about any of that. It's actually about ensuring our mate's mental health comes before whatever the hell the choice of drink in their hand mm. is. This is about mates supporting mates mm. and it's about ensuring that the gates are wide open so that if another little Shanna pops up as very clearly having a problem, instead of jamming another double rum at her, mm. we might stop and say, hey, mate, are you all right? Yeah. How's everything going? Yeah. Let's open it up. Let's mm. have a chat. Mm. Um, and I know you like on your website you give um, information on how you can have that conversation if needed and you've got um, links to places that you can go for resources or help or there's all sorts of um, information there for if you are the mate of the person with a drinking problem or if you are the person with a drinking problem or yeah. family, all sorts of mm. options yeah. and information. Yeah, so if someone's listening um, and they would like to delve into this, you know, yeah, visit visit the website soberinthecountry.org. We have everything you could poke a stick at in there. We're certainly not presenting as every solution to every person, but we have so many fabulous alliances with national bodies that do have, you know, funding and resources. So there's always somewhere to go. Mm. There is always somewhere to go. We, like I was saying before, our little bush tribe platform is an amazing place to land. If you're listening to this, you're in the country, you think you might be drinking too much or you know for a fact you're in big trouble, um, we don't care whether you refer to yourself as someone with alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. It's just a name. It doesn't matter. But if you identify as someone who's, you know, recognises, come and sign up and join the tribe and just hang out with other people. It's so powerful. Mm. There is such a huge spectrum of others in the same boat working together to learn how to do life without grogging the bush. It's mm. incredible. Mm. Um, it's very exciting. Oh, it's so exciting. And, and you know, we are an independent charity. We have no government funding, support, nothing Everything that we've done has been through contributions either from um, families and individuals in the bush or some of our philanthropic partners who gave us seed funding. And so what, how we've achieved what we have is, is simply mind-blowing. Mm. You know, the other thing I need to achieve before I die, which is hopefully not for a long while, I really want our national leadership to sit up and take note of this conversation and how essential it is. Mm. Because as yet, that's just simply not happened. And it breaks my heart because, you know, people have said to me many times, my God, if you were doing the work you're doing in, in methamphetamines or mental health or any other space, you would have been crowned <laughs> and given a royal pass. Mm. And I don't necessarily think that's true, but it just goes to show the disparity with how in Australia, tackling their conversation of alcohol, there's nothing harder. Mm. There is nothing more fraught with um, barriers because it's um, it's a legal, immense profit-making thing and our leaders don't want to touch it. Mm. It's too uncomfortable. It's too hard, mm. you know, and that's heartbreaking because it's, it's the leading cause of harm mm. globally. Mm. No question about it. Incredible. It's crazy stuff. Anyway, don't get me started, but, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. All right, well, can you tell us what do the days look like for you and Tim now? What's your everyday life like and, yeah, what do you enjoy doing together? We we live a completely different life. Um, 
our, our, my choice to not drink and Tim's choice to support me has meant that um, we're excluded from a huge amount of life. Um, I just think, once again, people don't know what to do with a non-mother and a non-drinker from a country town. Uh, so it's actually very lonely um, a lot of the time. So I would have to say that this charity and this purpose is it remains my lifeline because it gives me a reason to, to do everything that I do. If it wasn't for that, I think I'd actually probably, I don't know what I'd do. I'd have to probably relocate, you know. Um, so our life is filled with purpose to make sure that that isn't the story of people to come. So we're both very focused on changing the record so that future generations are not bound by that. Um, but we essentially are just focused on fitness, health, family and a very, very peaceful life now, extremely peaceful and steady and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, what matters to me is a sunrise and having my animals and my family and I think it would be safe to say that I hit the jackpot with the wands and my family, my my own family as well, there's nothing more important. It is the foundation of life now. Family and faith and, you know, a couple of very, very close friends, that's, that's all that matters and helping others, um, that's it. You know, as you know, we've recently moved to out of town and our life could not look or be more simple. We've literally now moved to a completely minimalist life. And I guess what you realise is, is as a sober person who's nearly lost everything, is that what matters is not things, it's just, it's just peace and it's people. And it's doing the best you can with what you've got left. Mm. That's what our life is. Well, I think there's nothing more to say. What a lovely way to finish it. And thank you so much for sharing all of your insight in, in your own trials and tribulations and, and how you've overcome that and, and how wonderful life can be on the other side. And it is an honour to be your sister-in-law. Don't you dare. <laughs> I'll cry. I love you. I love you too, Shania. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode with Shan, you learnt something or you think somebody you know might like to listen to it, please share it with them. You can also give the podcast a rating on your app or share it on social media to help other people find Conversations for Ali easier.